0: This is Steve Smith at the California Western School of Law and I call the Law Review to order. Today the Law Review legal roundtable discusses legal aspects of self-defense. If you go to any cocktail party, social gathering, of conversations with students anywhere, you hear about self-defense and what it means. Probably the George Zimmerman and Jody Arias cases are fueling much of that discussion. Unfortunately, much of it does not quite capture the essential elements of self-defense in the law. So, today we are going to try to shed a little light on this complex legal topic. We're not going to deal specifically with those cases, but with the broader issues of self-defense. We welcome our legal roundtable to discuss the legal to- this important topic. Attorney John Fisk, Judge Kenneth Medell, Wendy Patrick, attorney and teacher, and our guests, as always, are here as individual educators and not representatives of their offices. Thank you for joining us on Law Review to talk about self-defense. So what is self-defense?
1: Well, you know, when I was in the district attorney's office, for some reason, I was uh, assigned a lot of crimes of violence, uh, starting with simple assaults, people at parties, getting in fights, and that sort of thing. And as I would sit at the table to begin a trial, not knowing what the defense was gonna be, I was mortified that the defense would be self-defense. Uh, because self-defense is a devastating and easily put on uh, defense. Uh, And we'll talk about that in a second. It ended up that no one used that defense in any of my cases. They end up saying, it wasn't me that was there, it was some other guy. Or they ended up saying, I never touched the guy at all, and I don't know why he got all those bruises on his face. So I lucked out. But I was mortified of self-defense because it's simple. It really is simple. Uh, Generally, why is
0: everybody getting it wrong? uh, Well, (laughs)
1: because they're thinking too complex. I think people are superimposing a lot of social and cultural issues over the simplicity of self-defense. The basic core of self-defense is any person is entitled to use as much force uh, as is necessary to protect themselves from that same harm. So if I feel that you're going to give me a bloody nose because you're coming after me, I'm entitled to use that same force to protect myself from that bloody nose. That may not mean I can shoot you with a gun or stab you with a knife, because that might be over the top in in terms of the reasonable force I use. But at the extreme, um, uh, uh, if I feel, uh, for example, that you are going to kill me or that I'm in imminent risk of great bodily injury or death, then I may use equivalent force to protect myself from those consequences and that may indeed justify me shooting a gun at you or uh, stabbing you or using some extreme force to protect myself.
0: And so it was what you believe to be reasonably believed to be at the time that that is the test which is the reason that you were concerned about it because proving that one way or the other is tough I suppose. For
1: someone to say I was at a party and a man came at me and I thought I saw him reach in his pocket uh and to shoot uh, me uh, to shoot me and i that's why i did what i did i thought was an exceptionally easy thing uh a if it were true to state and b if it were not true to manufacture to hurt my case you know so i was out that's why i was concerned about that as a defense is how to how to combat that
2: one of the trickiest things this is wendy patrick one of the trickiest things about self-defense is how do you prove that one way or another to the jury Uh, How do you, and really prove isn't the right word, how do you demonstrate that it's a case of self-defense? One of the things that complicated the the, uh, George Zimmerman case is despite us complaining about the fact that there are cameras everywhere in the world, this incident occurred in one of the areas of the world where there were no cameras. So we couldn't just run back the videotape and see exactly what happened. So then you get to the issue of reenactments. How can you possibly reenact in, in whatever case, you know, it's the same in every case, how can you reenact exactly what happened to a jury? Um, I, the, a scene visit is one of the things that lawyers try. And that actually was something that was raised as a possibility in the Zimmerman case. The judge ultimately didn't allow it, but think even then, you know, the purpose of a scene visit would be to shed some light pun intended on how dark it was (laughs) now. I don't know how they would have recreated the rain All right, in San Diego. I mean, you have to wait, what, another 300 days till it rains again. So it's difficult to really reenact it exactly the way the participants were faced with it. But that's one of the only thing ways you can prove it or disprove it or show it is to demonstrate what it was really like under those conditions to a jury and that's tough
1: especially uh and I don't want to talk directly about any case but let's assume you used the ultimate deadly force in your own defense and eliminated your perpetrator who will never be able to tell that story again it becomes particularly difficult for a prosecutor to uh uh, to prove their side of the story
0: and I take it there there often is not there often are not other witnesses. You don't have other people who saw the whole thing going together and therefore it's uh, the old cliche, he said and nobody said.
2: Well, it's tricky because oftentimes you do have other witnesses that saw part of it. Uh, uh-huh. but, but again, their vantage points, what are they focused on and what brought it to their attention are very different from somebody who is absolutely focused on what's going on. You hear the term weapon focus. A lot of times people, you know, are focused on different things to the exclusion of other evidence and it's, all, you know, you kind of have to piece it together like a puzzle. But ultimately, like, you know, like Judge Medell was saying, a juror's got to understand and, and decide whether or not the amount of force responded with was reasonable.
1: You could see, uh, Dean Smith, that uh, if someone, uh, for example, followed someone um, because they were suspicious of them in an unwarranted way or had particular particular racial views, that may or may not be pertinent to the very moment when they make that decision that I'm in peril of my life.
0: And it's that moment. It's that moment
1: that's important in a criminal case. Now, I think John is going to probably talk a little bit about what happens in a civil case and other kinds of case. But it, it may be pertinent, but it may not be. It may be that someone says he was someone who hated America. He was a rotten kid and grew up. He was terrible. But at the very moment where he pulled that trigger, he was reasonable in believing that he himself was going to die, and therefore he was justified.
3: Well, in, in relationship to the Zimmerman trial specifically, which has <clears throat> obviously been in the news, one of the issues and questions I've had not being in the courtroom and not being a member of the jury is a proof issue and is an evidence issue and i didn't hear as much about that as i would have liked and i didn't hear as much about uh, as much about that as who were the witnesses that saw what how was the recreation how did it occur when george zimmerman decided not to take the stand and so even from that basis alone it was it seemed like the facts and the uh, issue of proof wasn't really the focus of the national dialogue. The focus of the national dialogue was all of these other things, and as an attorney, I wanted to know exactly what the evidence was in terms of uh, proving of the case. And we're assuming, everybody assumes when they talk about the Zimmerman trial that we're all agreeing that the facts were the same and whether or not he had his particular uh, fear at that particular time. But maybe Wendy or somebody can talk to in a criminal trial How are you going to prove uh, that this self-defense did or did not occur uh, when there aren't an an abundance of witnesses and when there aren't video cameras?
2: right and it falls upon the prosecution to prove that the defendant did not act in self-defense and one of the uh, complicated well there's so many complicating factors but yet another um that complicated uh, us all trying to guess whether or not the case was proven in in this instance in the Zimmerman trial is you got to remember that those six women were not privy to the enormous amount of media controversy back and forth every night commentators spec- speculating televised in court hearings and arguments on both sides those six women on the jury saw none of that so so their verdict was faced on literally a fraction of the evidence we saw on both sides of the fence regarding self-defense, stand your ground, which, by the way, wasn't the wasn't used right. because, according to um, defense attorney Mark O'Mara, what he was trying to say was that there was no opportunity to retreat. But you know regardless of, of how you believe the facts you know should be interpreted we're interpreting it based on an enormous amount of evidence that those six women thankfully didn't have that's wh- that's why sequestration is appropriate in a case like this to shield them from all this extraneous argument on both sides sequestration
0: meaning the jury was held more or less incommunicado so all they heard about the case was supposed to be in the courtroom itself in so the they didn't go home at night for that's example. right
2: in the courtroom only doing the evidence phase and while there were no details as to whether this occurred in this case they did reveal that in other cases like this where they've sequestered jurors they didn't even let them have their iphones because obviously you know right. might as well have a tv set if you got have your iphone yeah. again uh, they didn't specifically say it, it was with respect to this case but with the big cases that's one of the things they do
0: and picking up judge Bedell's point the, the jurors here were being asked to decide having heard from neither of the direct participants. I mean, the, the defendant did not testify. The victim could not testify. And so they were asked, That that's why you saw the, the little parts I saw. There was just all this, what you would ordinarily think was kind of extraneous uh, testimony because you're trying to put yourself in the what the person was trying to do in the instance, as Judge Medell said. I think uh, you've,
1: uh, again, without commenting on the case directly, you've uh, put your finger directly on the difficult uh, job it is sometimes to be a prosecutor because uh, it's up to you to provide that information to a jury that is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And you'll hear in um, uh, jury selection over and over and over again from the defense attorney, I don't have to prove anything to you. Do you understand that? It's up to Ms. Patrick, the DA, to provide proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So your question is going to be this. Did she give you proof beyond a reasonable doubt? Or did she not give you proof beyond reasonable doubt? And that second one means not guilty. So um, every once in a while, you you get a case where putting that clear picture together is difficult because there's a whole bunch of jigsaw puzzle parts missing. And uh, I think in uh, well, I'll, I'll stop right there in terms of not commenting on that case, but.
2: Well, I think what everybody's talking about now, in addition, you know, um, I almost feel in some cases it really doesn't – it's really no longer about the defendant. It's about a lot of the issues that have been raised. Um, And here, one of the things people are talking about is, gosh, what's next? Is it going to be a civil suit? Is it going to be federal civil rights prosecution? Um, One thing uh, I think we can all agree upon, though, is – George Zimmerman has officially joined the ranks of the very unpopular ex-criminal defendants who've been acquitted club. I mean, you know, we're not going to run into this guy at the mall or at the beach. I mean, he's he, according to his brother, he doesn't even leave the house without a bulletproof vest. So it, it really has drawn a lot of public attention onto the process. You know, not only the separation of powers issue... Um, But the jury system, uh, different laws, the difference between stand your ground and self-defense, there's an enormous amount of confusion about that distinction. And And, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Yeah, we'll get to that. But, I mean, it really isn't so much about George Zimmerman anymore as it is about a, a large spectrum of other... Um, both social, criminal, legal, uh, and civil rights issues that everybody's now talking about.
0: It's probably one of the reasons that in these cocktail conversations I was talking about, you hear such strange things because people are loading on this issue a lot of other social, I'm going to call it baggage, but uh, social issues and social problems that that kind of come up because incidental to the the legal issue of self-defense Y- so. Yeah
3: and I think strange issues is the correct term and I've heard a lot of people talk about a lot of strange things too and one of the things I need to remind myself is maybe I start to think strange things I'm not immune to it is that uh, let's start off with the premise that okay the system isn't perfect okay we know that let's you know we can exhale the system isn't <laughs> perfect alright no one no one expects it to be uh, but it's pretty darn good and then from that we frame the issues that the jury has to respond to. And when you do that, and you take it in the moment of self-defense, then you have to forgive the system a little bit. And you have to forgive the jury for doing what it is they were supposed to do in that moment.
0: Well, I mean, forgiveness suggests that they made a mistake. And one of the things that, the other things that I've heard is people commenting with certainty about whether this was or was not self-defense, having listened to even less of the evidence than I did, and I didn't hear very much of it. And the jurors heard millions of times more than most people who seem to be commenting on this.
3: Yeah, and in terms of the actual you know, physical evidence or the actual uh, admitted evidence, they certainly heard much more than anybody else. And so when the larger population is talking about race, and race was never a legal issue in this case. I mean, it just wasn't. Well, let me ask whether it could have
0: been, John, because what Judge Medell was saying, it's what's in somebody's mind, that if somebody's uh, a blatant racist and kills someone of the other race, uh, would that be different in a self-defense case as opposed to someone who had never expressed any racial opinions?
3: Well, that's a good question, and maybe something better for the criminal minds to address, but I guess, just real quickly, from the perspective of... Again, the national, uh, yeah. uh, I, I don't believe race is an element that was really
1: uh, brought up. I think in, in the right case, you know, each case has its own set of circumstances. Yeah. So if uh, when uh, someone calls the police and says, uh, there's someone in my neighborhood, he's of a certain race. I'm so tired of people being in my neighborhood that I'm going to go kill him right now. And I don't care what you say then that statement would be directly relevant to a state, <laughs> a state of mind that may be inconsistent with self-defense yeah. that Ms. Patrick might want to get introduced mm-hmm. into evidence. And suddenly, mm-hmm. because of the nature of the statement, it becomes relevant. Um, when there isn't evidence like that, when there isn't supportive evidence that uh, someone is behaving on a motivation to murder or kill to rebut the idea of self-defense, you, it's not really fair that just because the two uh, people are of different races that you just start interjecting these these themes in without an appropriate evidentiary basis for it. And I, think, and I think that's what judges that's our role as a judges is to listen to the information before the trial begins, hearing the lawyer's offers of proof, and saying, you know, uh, Ms Patrick, Mr. Fisk, I'm not seeing, that race is a really super important part of what you've told me unless you tell me something more that would make it relevant.
2: Well, you've got to prove more than that for a hate crime too. Yeah, you're right. You have to prove that somebody was targeted because of race or race was a substantial factor. You can't just have two people of different races or, and and by the way, that goes, that's the same sexual orientation, religion, disability, all the categories that are protected. So um, it, it is interesting that people, a lot of people are focusing on that now, Uh, And a lot of non-lawyers. And that's tough. It's tough to watch people, you know, get riled up with commentators talking about, you know, how easy it is or isn't, you know, able to prove certain laws when, you know, we know that those really aren't the elements. And that is exactly the debate that's been going on with Stand Your Ground versus Self-Defense. And
0: let's talk about Stand Your Ground. Before we do that, Judge Medell's made the point that— Self-defense in the criminal law essentially requires that someone have used reasonable force to protect himself. There, there's a protection of others, but we'll leave that out for a moment. To from from, from a physical harm, uh, in some cases robbery, but let's talk from physical harm. But the amount of force has to be reasonable. A reasonable response is one of the points he made. The second point he made was you have to be in reasonable fear and. a Under the circumstances and reasonable fear of harm to yourself. So that's the core. And then, but but you're right. We've heard the stand your ground stuff from the beginning. And yet, I don't remember it being, you said it was not an issue. Let let me uh, jump in here because I
1: I took the liberty uh, in my effort to not comment directly on anything in particular. Uh, I will talk generally about the jury instructions uh, in Florida.
0: <laughs> oh, these are Florida. And, and may I just add a parenthetical or a footnote? A footnote, which is the state. these are state laws we're talking about, yes. b- by and large, and they vary a little from one state to the other. So principle one is a person is
1: justified in using deadly force if he reasonably believes that such force is necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to himself. So that's a situation where you're trapped in a situation, someone is attacking you, and you think you're going to die or get really badly injured. That's when you can use equivalent force back, including killing someone. I think what it says, stand your ground, is when that same thing happens. Someone comes after you, but you have a chance to run and get away. And I think the statute basically says, and I'll read it verbatim in a minute, that You don't, if someone attacks you with great bodily force, deadly harm, you don't need to run away necessarily uh, to be justified in using deadly force against them. It states, um, if the uh, defendant was not engaged in unlawful activity and was attacked in any place where he had the right to be, he has no duty to retreat and he has the right to stand his ground and meet force with force, including deadly force, if he reasonably believed that it was necessary to do so to prevent death or great bodily harm to himself.
0: And that's the Florida instruction. That right? is. And, and and that's the core of of Stand Your Ground, which is that, that there's no duty to retreat. A bunch of states, mo- a lot of states, have an obligation to retreat. So in the, 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 the bar situation, we'll take it out of a home which has special things. But in a bar situation, if somebody says, I'm about to, to punch you, uh, th- You may not be able to just say, take your best shot, and I'll fire this gun. You may have to step back and say, I'm not interested in that.
3: Well, and what's interesting is the attorney general uh, basically made a big deal. The United States States Attorney General. United States Uh, Attorney General. Thank you. Yeah, Eric Holder Holder made a real big deal about this in a speech afterwards. And Stand Your Ground wasn't part of the uh, case. And there are actually only 23 states, I think, today that have Stand Your Ground laws. Maybe someone— can update me on that number. So most states don't have Stand Your Ground. Um, and what's interesting in both of those um, recitations is the use of the word reasonable. Yeah. And in both situations, you have to reasonably believe that you're in danger. And I think where a lot of the public, uh, although not often articulated this way, but what a lot of the public is upset about, especially a lot of black commentators on television, is that is race allowed to be a factor if you want to call yourself reasonable in being afraid in other words is it still okay in 2013 for a white person to be afraid of a black person i mean that's kind of what the that's kind of what the discussion and dialogue gets down to on a very kind of dirty seedy level that nobody wants to ever talk about but that's why people are so upset because when we're talking about self defense the issue is if this was a white person even before the profiling in that very moment. Are we as white Americans or black Americans or Chinese Americans allowed to be afraid of another race and have that be
0: called reasonable in a court of law? I think you probably hit on what a a lot of the the stuff that's being stacked on this case is really about is exactly that. In some ways, I think it would be healthier to talk about that issue as opposed to stand your ground, which for the life of me, I I was not sure what the attorney general was, was doing. Uh, in talking about if he followed the case, what he was doing, and it, it, it to some degree, stand your ground is is a surrogate for that discussion you just pointed out. I think.
3: Yeah, it is, and that's where I think a lot of the a lot of the uh, f- anger comes out. Yeah, is is it, even if you strip away the profiling aspect and you say, okay, I agree that the law says it's in this specific moment, uh, it, it's it's not only the the racial issue, but it's the quasi socioeconomic issue in the fact that that he's wearing certain clothes and he's in a certain neighborhood. So you take that same exact scenario and you put it in La Jolla, California uh, with a young white kid who's got Skittles in his cargo pants instead of his sweatshirt. Is he allowed, is he reasonable then? So what were the factors that this person was considering when they decided reasonably or not to be afraid?
0: Uh, Today on Law Review, we are discussing the self-defense legal issues with attorneys John Fisk and Wendy Patrick and Judge Kenneth Bedell.
2: Well, because so many people are speculating now as to whether or not we'll see a civil suit for wrongful death filed by the the family, John, uh, in a civil suit, would both Stand Your Ground and Self-Defense, would they work the same?
3: Well, I think Stand Your Ground is um, probably specific to criminal because I haven't myself heard of Stand Your Ground in civil, those terms. Was that
0: just wrapped into what's reasonable? That is to say, does a reasonable person retreat or not retreat? Yeah, and there is
3: self-defense in civil. I mean, there are lots of civil cases that include battery assault, uh, just sort of this run-of-the-mill intentional tort in California. You can actually just say it's an intentional tort. Uh, yeah. And so self-defense is, in fact, a defense, and I myself have litigated several Uh, combat cases, uh, which, you know, my client is generally on the losing side of that fight. Um, And so the entire conversation shifts, and the entire conversation is, were these two people reasonable? Did they act within a standard of care that we want all of our reasonably prudent people to be acting in our society? Isn't
0: that just a consent, an issue of, did they consent to be in this fight? You know, that's a defense.
3: That's certainly a defense when you're a victim of a um, of an attack. You're going to say, well, the reason I, or, or a purported victim of an attack, yeah. you're going to say the reason I engaged in the conduct and was also punched was because we were both consenting
0: to the fight. And, and, and that would be one difference from a criminal case, which you can't consent to be engaged in criminal conduct. So you could be, have consented to and avoid a civil case, I suppose, but have not been able to consent. To, in, to be involved in a, a, a street fight. I will say, though, practically in civil cases, yeah.
3: the concept of consent is generally not that applicable. And, uh, and the reason is there's usually one instigator. Oh, and, I see. Um, and, and so whether you could say that one of these two gentlemen could consent to this conduct would be a pretty difficult issue to tease out. Yeah, I mean that—that's. I think that's real difficult. Well, that's
0: another. Would be another. He said. He said. Presumably. Yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah. So in that particular situation, I think we'd probably go back to self-defense as a defense, um, because the issue of consent almost conjures up. We're we're agreeing at three o'clock. We both have, have agreed to meet at the flagpole at three o'clock to fight, and she one person—it's right the bike racks, table. isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bike yeah. Racks? There's some yeah. sort of express intention we there. Meet the wall. Meet <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> at the wall.
0: I went to a much more peaceable school. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you. Yeah. Yeah. I saw some pretty I'll awful say. things. Yeah. Well, Wendy's <laughs> raised the, uh, the issue of civil liability. Yeah. Could uh, could George, we, we don't know, but could Mr. Zimmerman uh, be involved in a civil lawsuit, even though he was found not guilty in the criminal lawsuit?
3: He certainly could. And although my expertise is in California law, I, I don't think it's too dissimilar in Florida law at the state level where someone uh, can be sued for the wrongful death of another person simply because they were not acting reasonably and their conduct was a substantial factor in the death of the decedent. And it's the decedent's family who brings the action for basically their loss. Um, In this particular situation, you have a young person who, um, and it does get, unfortunately, this uh, brutal or, or, or crass I should say um, yeah, that you have to start evaluating the person's economic value to the people around him and loved ones and someone's case value goes up or down. Um, in, in Trayvon Martin's case if it were in California his damages a- and, and the damages to the family might actually be much less than someone who might be a 55 year old earner with three kids and also taking care of their uh, parents. So it's, a, it's definitely a case that's there, and I'm sure there are many enterprising uh, lawyers in Florida who'd be willing to take that case. Um, if you really wanted high value in that case as a civil attorney, you would probably be looking at a punitive damages case. And you'd probably start the story way back to when George Zimmerman left his house, got into his car, and what he wanted to do that day. Uh, in the civil case, it might be somewhat difficult to get a deposition or testimony from George Zimmerman if he's allowed to plead the fifth, if there's a pending or potential for a federal civil rights action or or prosecution. So I think there is a definitely a chance that, that it will occur. Um, I'll bet dollars to donuts it does occur, and I think they have a much better chance of a civil suit because we're talking about comparative negligence. In Florida, it's a pure comparative system where we're comparing, percentage-wise, the conduct of every party who's involved.
0: So two things you've mentioned are different. Uh, number one is, uh, it's not the moment that Judge Medell started, so it's at the moment of a decision. It's the whole, the whole range of things that led up to, to the, the uh, gun being fired that would be relevant, including the, the training for the uh, neighborhood watch, potential liability of the neighborhood watch, whether it was negligent to be going after kid I mean, just a whole range of things that are different. And the second is the level of proof is, as I think Wendy pointed out, you have to prove this stuff in a criminal case beyond a reasonable doubt. You're talking about a preponderance of the evidence, a much lower standard. Much, much lower. In fact,
3: although I don't like to describe it this way because it seems, uh, I don't think it's very convincing to say this, but if it's 51% on your side, some have described that as being a preponderance. Of yeah, that, that
0: d- that's a, it just in, in terms of an everyday thought. That's kind of what it, it means, as opposed to some unknown figure, because we'd never put a percentage on certainty for beyond a reasonable doubt. But I if I were uh, guessing, I would say a lot of people would say 90% certainty as opposed to 51% certainty. That, that's you right. Just, I do not want to be quoted on that, so that's just <laughs> among us. You
1: just make some very dramatic hand gestures.
2: As <laughs> <laughs> has <laughs> been my experience. I'm sure <laughs> Wendy's could, also here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, not only, is, not only is the burden of proof different, obviously the, the sanction is different. We're talking about money versus liberty. But one of the other things that comes into the analysis is what is the family going to get out of George Zimmerman? I mean, his his defense was funded by public donations. Um, now, I suppose it would be different if he signed a book deal or something like that. I mean, certainly we don't expect he's going to be doing any public appearances despite some speculation to the contrary. I mean, he's afraid for his life. People are getting arrested for threatening his life. Uh, when OJ Simpson lost his civil lawsuit, uh, the Goldman family and the Nicole Brown Simpson family got a, a judgment of $33.5 million. But how much of that did OJ repay? <laughs> So yeah. it's one of the things in the mix. Now, that's not to say that some people don't pursue legal action for closure and to seek justice. There are other motivations besides money. But money certainly is something that people are looking at in a case like this where I don't know what there's going to be available to give should that be successful.
3: Yeah, and the most likely scenario to collect money, uh, in my opinion, would be an umbrella policy on a homeowner's insurance uh, program. How about something like the Neighborhood Watch? You know, the neighbor, that's very interesting. That is very, very interesting. Because if he's acting as an agent of the Neighborhood Watch, and the Neighborhood Watch is an actual organization uh, that has some sort of formed entity um, with some sort of funding or some sort of insurance, you certainly could possibly tap into that policy by alleging negligence. Of course, you cannot insure somebody for engaging in intentional conduct. That's against public policy and void on its face. But if you allege a negligence cause of action and prove up a negligence cause of action, and he happens to be an agent of an organization that has an insurance policy, and possibly even if that organization has some sort of policy, procedure, or principle that he was adhering to, then you could um, allege vicarious liability that would allow you to reach into what we call a deeper pocket.
0: Well, uh, before we close, a couple of lightning rounds ab- about questions people have asked me about this. Number one, uh, how could there be six jurors in a case? <laughs> I'm still
1: <laughs> scratching my head. <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> well, states are permitted by the Supreme Court to use less than 12. Uh, so some states, even in felony cases, this was a big-time felony case, are permitted to do it. The Constitution, the Supreme Court itself, does not require 12, although it's it's a little un. Unusual for states to for these for serious felonies to go less than.
3: I've received that question. I also received, "How is it a jury of your peers if it's all women?" Someone actually asked me that. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and they said there's six women. Well, what? Those are two guys that got into a fight. So what are the? You know, so that's
0: interesting. Well, in fact, the the um, both sides must have been striking men from the pool. I didn't see this, but striking and the prosecution struck one minority member not that that stuff all probably doesn't matter since he was found not guilty but there are some constitution i was thinking there were some constitutional issues uh about uh pulling certainly on the basis of race it's clear that if prosecutors do that that they've created a among, uh, an inappropriate jury pool.
2: Well, neither side can do that. There's plenty of evidence. Yeah, th- yeah, that's, that's one right. of the things that was raised um, in jury selection, and is often in cases where you have to justify, you know, and it, it gets really complicated. But suffice it to say, is there are constitutional protections. You can't pick a jury based on that. Okay, neither side. So, neither the, side.
0: so the next question is um, Isn't it double jeopardy for the federal government to be looking at charging somebody for, for something they was just found not guilty of in state court? I think Wendy should answer that question.
2: No, you know, a separation of powers issue, I think, um, Ken, you should probably take this one um, generally. You know,
1: I I would think, and I have never dealt with this either as a prosecutor or as a civil attorney. Now as a judge, I haven't dealt with it directly. But my suspicion, and it's only a suspicion, is that I think there would have to be a difference in the nature and character of the charges. In order to justify a one separate different element.
3: Well, about? can I ask that? Que- that's an interesting yeah. question because yeah. I had this debate with another attorney, mm-hmm. and my my best comment on the on the issue is I have no clue what the answer to that question <laughs> yeah. is. I really don't because I've heard uh, nature and circumstances. I've heard elements need to be the same. So I've heard two different standards. And if there is a different element like race, is that large enough in a let's say um, a, a hate crime or a federal I don't think it would quite be 1983 but something similar to that. You know, what would you be able to 1983 is a civil action, but what would you be able to do on the on the federal criminal side? It, it, it's a it's a question I haven't heard a good answer the,
0: to. The, 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 there would be limits to Florida's ability to to just add a small additional element and retry. They that's true. state court that, that, they're because, done. because that's yeah. a state court, but this right. I mean it's one of the strange parts of our of our form of government is that they would be charged by a different sovereign entity, the United States government as opposed to the state government. So there's a little more flexibility in adding a little additional element, and and a hate crime issue would be a civil rights violation would be an additional element. And that has happened, and in fact, in the the 1960s, it got to be in some cases almost routine that the federal government would come in and try to— I'm trying people, to yeah. remember whether that happened with the
1: officers involved in the Rodney King beating. That's the conversation that I had today. I don't remember. And I know I, that people were thinking about that, but I simply don't remember. And, and, and the historical
3: aspect is extremely interesting because yeah. where we say, you know, Ranger Danger, we don't want double jeopardy, at one time it was an extremely important uh, social uh, tool.
0: Well, we are out of time, I'm sorry, to say thank you very much. I, I suspect uh, that we will hear more about self-defense uh, in the coming weeks than we've heard for the past 20 years combined. So I want to thank our guests on Law Review today, Attorney John Fisk, Judge Kenneth Madell, and Attorney Wendy Patrick. Uh, this has been a, a very helpful discussion. They have, however, been speaking as educators and not representatives of their offices. We also want to thank our producers, Megan Wright, along with Katrina Julian, Jen Park, Sarah Kegi, and Tomer Gutman. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or by visiting lawreview.podbean.com. We enjoy hearing from you, so send uh, a message to us by way of that lawreview.podbean.com site. Until next time, this is Steve Smith, and the Law Review stands adjourned.